Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Isaiah 53. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible like this in front of you. Page 613 That's where you'll find that text. So it's been a whirlwind of a three weeks. Three weeks ago today, said amen, church service was over. About 15 minutes later, Rochelle's water broke in that bathroom in the hallway, and things moved pretty quickly uh, from there in welcoming both Graham and Lauren into the world, growing our family to from four to six, and it's been um, wild ever since. Um, but yeah, I could say so much here, but just uh, we'll say simply, um, we just so appreciate this church family, and uh, to be on the receiving end of just love and care and abundance, uh, amongst many things, proud to just be a pastor of this faith community, and, and, and really happy to just come up and share uh, the scriptures again with you all today, again tomorrow evening. Um, hope you'll be here for our Christmas Eve service if you're in town. Uh, bring someone with you as well. Um, but she, she's not here, so I, I don't need her permission, but I do have a little footage of uh, our expanded family, a little faded. Uh, we somehow made it over here for some Christmas pictures, uh, made it look much nicer than, than it really was. It was about an hour to get about one uh, good one. You guys know what that's like, but um, we are uh, just deeply grateful and unbelievably tired. So um, if, I, if I'm talking slower this morning, like that's not for dramatic effect. Um, I, like my, it's as fast as my brain's going to go, but... Um, Pastor Jeff and, and Andy Steen over the last two weeks have just done a great job in my absence carrying forward this theme of joy that we've been talking about in our Advent season. And we've been doing it as AJ's video showed us week after week, uh, taking texts out of the book of Isaiah. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Isaiah um, it was a prophet who wrote uh, his book seven to eight hundred years before Jesus was born. And it has all these prophecies about uh, this coming Messiah um, uh, that long before Jesus um, arrived. And, and we've seen texts in Isaiah 7, uh, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. And, and this morning we're going to fast forward our last Sunday of Advent all the way to Isaiah 53. And the reason is because I want to answer the question, how? How is it that this long-awaited-for Messiah will accomplish the work of delivering God's people that we've been talking about, that we've been singing about, that our kids were singing about this morning. How is that going to happen? And I want to come full circle on this theme of joy by reaffirming what, what I think to be a, a very vital aspect in the Christian life. And, and uh, I'll, I'll put it like this in a question. Um, how is it that we can live lives of joy, like, like real joy, like joyful lives? Not like, oh, that's good for a sermon, but like out these doors, a life, practical life of joy while living in a fallen world where any number of things can and does threaten our joy. How, how does that happen? And so here's the vital point up front I never want to get away from. Our, and this is hopefully implicitly spoken in week after week, if you're with us often in our uh, preaching and our teaching. But I want to explicitly state it this morning, that our primary joy is in God himself and not the things we may or may not get from God. Okay, that might seem like a play on words and there's a small difference, but it means everything. It could mean the difference of persevering in the faith and just kind of walking away altogether. As we stand two days away from Christmas morning, maybe I can put it this way, our primary and unbreakable joy is found in the giver and not the gifts. I, I find, I think, and I'm not alone in this, that I just get more nostalgic this time of year. 
I'm not really a nostalgic person throughout the year, but you get me into kind of Thanksgiving to Christmas, I just get much more nostalgic than normal because if I had to rank my top 50 memories as a kid, 47 of them are probably around Christmas time. And, and I, I realize that might not be everybody's story and kind of growing up and how they experienced Christmas, but for me and our family, that's just kind of what it was. Loved this time of year. And it's uh, now interesting being kind of on the other side a little bit, having our oldest is um, four years old, that he is just out of his mind in love with Christmas. Um, and, and, like, and just like he's in on everything. And like we're all in on everything. Like the songs, like he knows more songs than I think I do about Christmas. And like all the words and, and the decorations, he loves the chocolate advent calendar. Anyone else do that? Like Rochelle bought it for a dollar and it's been like the best gift for us over the last four weeks. And he somehow only takes one a day. Um, but like, and, and as expected, four years old, the kid loves presents. Like any time a package has been delivered to our house, like he just assumes it's for him. Like he's not even asking. He just goes, oh, I wonder what that is. I bet you're going to put it in the basement because you don't want me to see it till Christmas. Like he doesn't even ask. He just assumes. And, and like, and listen, I, I'm okay with this. I was the same way. Loved making a list. Loved coming down Christmas morning, seeing gifts under the tree. And, and, and yet here's the thing. I re-realize every Christmas season. And now I'm reminded even more watching Caden. Um, you know, I can barely remember the gifts I got as a kid. Like, like if I were to think about the dozens and dozens of gifts I received from the age of 12 and under, uh, maybe three or four I could recall. And it's because there's some video footage of it, of me opening it. But in the moment, they are everything, aren't they? Like, you're consumed by them. You love them. And, and then there's things on your list, if you were like me, that you didn't get every year. Like, and you don't want to let mom and dad know, but you're like, oh, I didn't get that. And, and so there's, there's some level of disappointment even on, like, Christmas afternoon. But, but, like, hear me, all these years later, and, like, I'm not that old, like, as old as some of you guys. Like, I won't be able to do that forever, all right? I'm milking that now, all right? I'm going to be the old cranky guy up here soon, and so I'm just doing it now. But here's the thing. Like, I just don't remember the gifts. I remember the people who were there. I remember my parents who loved making it a special time of year. I remember having three older brothers who maybe didn't body slam me for the Christmas season because they're all up in the spirit. I remember the traditions we did each year. I remember the time we spent. Hear me. I remembered their bodily presence more than the Christmas presents, right? And in the same way, our ultimate joy in life is God himself. It's not our only joy, right? It's important to know. He's our ultimate joy, not our only joy. But foundationally, our joy is in him, and that is what sustains us in this kind of fallen world, which is just a constant roller coaster of ups and downs. And Isaiah 53 is going to help us unpack that. If you're familiar again with your Bible, Isaiah 53, man, it's a heavyweight chapter. Like it is top five kind of probably famous chapters in the Bible. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Mitch Glazer from Chosen People here last month. Uh, he wrote an entire book on Isaiah 53. And it is kind of central to evangelizing, especially evangelizing the Jewish people that he serves um, in Brooklyn and in Israel. Um, but men and women over the course of history have gotten saved just reading Isaiah 53. And I can never capture all of its weight and power in a single sermon, but I want to have this kind of more narrow approach this morning. How is Isaiah 53 connected to Advent? And so here's the point. The, the joy, the joy of the good news of Jesus' arrival in a manger only makes sense when we consider the good news of his departure on a cross. 
It's a big statement, talking about the cross and suffering, and if I raise of hands, probably nobody signed up for that kind of sermon two days before Christmas. Um, and yet, I think more than most of us realize, even in this room, this is a season of suffering for many. Not only maybe of losing somebody this past year, but losing somebody years ago, and, and you know that Christmas has never been the same without blank. And I hear that from a lot of people, that this is a hard season. And so my plea to you, from God's word, there is joy for you in this season. And so Isaiah 53, many of you know what it's all about, right? It's about the cross and suffering of Christ. And, and so here's the temptation, is that we think, oh, I know what's Isaiah 53. So we don't actually dig into what does it actually say. It's like a guy going into um, a, a field that's filled with gold and just looking at the field and going, yeah, there's gold here but never actually taking the opportunity to get your hands in the dirt and see that gold come to the surface. So that's my hope this morning. We're going to get our hands dirty in Isaiah 53. And I want us to be overwhelmed with the person and work of our Savior this morning and make it abundantly clear by the end that our primary joy can be in nothing else but God himself. So we're actually going to start, and I'll tell you why in a moment, at the end of Isaiah 52. And start in verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. We are going to run through six attributes across our passage this morning of our Messiah. And first, it's kind of a three-for-one deal, all right? The Messiah is a suffering servant king. And these three verses, the reason I read them is that they're kind of an introduction to Isaiah 53, it's an introduction that gives you this main point up front. So go back to your high school days, go back to your college days, and you had to write a paper. What did your teacher always freak out about in your paper? What was the most important sentence that you had to craft in your paper? The thesis. Like English teachers lose their mind over the thesis, right? They, they say this in a single sentence. Tell me what this paper is about. Tell me what the main point is. Tell me what the compelling argument that you will unpack throughout the work. You see, a great paper requires a great thesis. And Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 is the thesis that will be unpacked in Isaiah 53. That a servant will suffer an end and exaltation. That phrase in there, it's unique to um, Isaiah, high and lifted up. Jeff hit it in his prayer this morning. There's probably no phrase that I pray more in my private prayers and my public prayers that Jesus is high and lifted up. I need to be reminded of that because when he's low down here, I can shift him over there. I can control him. I can say, Jesus, I want you like that. I don't want, you like, want you like that. When he is high and lifted up, we are controlled. We submit to him. And so, uh, and it's only in Isaiah you see this phrase, high and lifted up. And what happens is the kings of the world are going to see him one day and they're going to shut their mouths. Can you imagine that? Nobody tells a king to shut their mouth. But they won't be able to speak when they see him. 
Their power will be dismantled just at the sight of him, and one day they will understand who he is. But this servant, here's the crazy part of it, this servant, he'll get to that place not by subduing his enemies, but by spilling his own blood. See the language in there. He suffered brutally. His appearance so disfigured, you could barely tell he was a man afterwards. Like this suffering would be so brutal and yet would be the very means through which the nations will be sprinkled. That's a word picture that the Jews would recognize, uh, those who were reading this 800 years before Jesus' birth, because to be sprinkled with blood was to be cleansed of sin through the atonement of an innocent sacrifice. Come on now, that's a compelling thesis. Let's see how he unpacks it. Isaiah 53 Verses 1 and 2. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Second attribute, the Messiah comes from humble beginnings. So I love the way Isaiah 53 starts. He really starts with two questions. He goes, so who's believed this? He gives you this kind of crazy scandalous statement and goes, who believes it? Anyone? To whom has this work been revealed to? That your Messiah that you've been waiting for, your Messiah that we've been talking about all throughout this book of Isaiah, he's going to suffer. And by his blood, the nations will be healed. Who believes it? It shows right here up front the necessity of faith. And in order for you to believe anything, something must be revealed to you first. Without revelation, there is no faith. That's why Isaiah follows up with that. So who has this been revealed to? The only way people can and will believe in the work of Jesus Christ and find their joy in him is if God reveals to you his plan of restoration. You won't find it on your own. That's why it's all grace We talk a lot about grace, that God graciously reveals his son so no one can boast, like, I found it. You guys didn't find it. I found it. No, it's all God's revelation to us. And our response to scandalous grace is faith. That's how Isaiah 53 starts. It's a great start. And then verse 2 is this kind of sort of biography of Jesus' early life, of what this Messiah will be. He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. If you were here last Sunday, that should start ringing some bells. Andy preached on Isaiah chapter 11 of the shoot, the branch that comes out of the stump of Jesse looking forward to Christ. Out from the ground. Okay, so I'm curious. How many, by a show of hands, how how many of you, this is a weird question, have planted a tree in your life? Hi, hi, hi. Raise them up. It's more than I thought. I respect that. Okay, I... um, I, I haven't, but I've seen trees planted. And if you ever see a tree right after it's planted, you know what? It's pretty unimpressive. Like, its beginnings are really kind of small. It's this little plant. You have to put, like, a fence around it or something. No one's even explained that to me. Um, and then there's this, like, thing around the, uh, the trunk as it begins to grow because it's vulnerable and it's weak and it's small. Every big tree came from a humble beginning. And this is the word picture Isaiah puts forward as the Messiah because um, not uh, not only that, but Isaiah says there's nothing amazing about his arrival. 
Like we celebrate Christmas. It's a big deal because we know what Christmas led to. But the first Christmas, no one cared. No one really knew about it. There was no majesty that would be expected of a king being born. No beauty that anyone would look at and envy. You know what he was? He was normal. Kind of a middle to low class family. And so surely the nation of Israel reading Isaiah 53 would go, huh? Like how is it our Messiah, the one who's going to rule nations, will grow up in total obscurity? Like that doesn't make sense. And yet you get to the Christmas narratives that we read in Luke and in Matthew, and it puts this on display, that there was a boy born in a know-nothing town of Bethlehem. It was a one-traffic-like kind of town. Nobody's radar. And then he grew up in a town called Nazareth, which was really on nobody's radar. It wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nobody thought anything would come out of Nazareth. In fact, we read that in John chapter 1. As he starts to get his disciples, one uh, guy goes to his brother and goes, here's the guy. He's come. Jesus from Nazareth. And what does, uh, I think, I forget which disciple it is, forgive me, says in that moment. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It reminds me of the times, anytime I hear LeBron James, um, talk, give a speech about one of the accolades that he has had in, you know, 16-year career. Is he the best? Is he the second best? We won't have that argument. We'll have it later. Um, but but you, every other week, it's like, oh, LeBron passed this record, and he passed Wilt Chamberlain, and now he passed Kobe Bryant here. And anytime a mic goes to his mouth, and goes, what do you think about this, LeBron? What does he always say at some point in those comments? He goes, you know what? I can't, I'm just a kid from Akron. Akron, Ohio, and, and apparently just the way he talks about it, that you know what people say in Ohio? Can anything good come from Akron? Nothing special. Just grew up in the streets. My father abandoned us. And yet out from the ground of Akron came LeBron James, and in the same way, out from the ground of Nazareth, nobody's radar, comes the Messiah. He came from humble beginnings. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through Five. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. Third, the Messiah is a substitute. He's a substitute. Uh, these are probably the most well-known verses in Isaiah 53. Um, but you should see them in a different light when you consider what we just read before that, about his obscure arrival. You know why Jesus was despised and rejected by men? Because he was a nobody. Like, we've seen it all throughout the Gospel of Mark this past year. Uh, Pharisees were, like, constantly asking, who are you? Who do you think you are? What authority do you have? How can you say the things you do? How can you do the things you do? You're not special. You're not, you don't have the pedigree like we have. You don't have the education that we have. You don't have the privilege in your society like we have. Who do you think you are? You're a nobody. 
And that is why they rejected his message. Because what was the, um, the, the kind of indictment that they literally hung him on? Blasphemy. Claiming to be somebody you're not. Punishable by death. And so no wonder Isaiah follows this up in his prophecy saying, He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Here's some really important gold to pull out from the dirt of Isaiah 53. Jesus was perfect, sinless, and therefore experienced joy to the fullest. And yet, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right here in this verse is evidence of what we say often around here, that it's possible to feel joyful even when you're feeling the weight and burden of a fallen world all around you. That's possible to be filled with joy in the midst of sorrow. They're not opposites. They can happen together. And for those who, you, who would say right now, like you are in a year of sorrow, a season of deep grief, like you might be prone to think in those moments, you see the lights, you see the smiles, and everybody laughing, you're going, this isn't for me. I can't be here. I can't worship like this. Christianity doesn't offer me anything. It doesn't deliver. But on the contrary, the center of our faith is a man who experienced sorrow and grief on a level that we cannot even begin to imagine. And then it goes next level in the next verse. Verse 4, when he says, he bore our sorrows. He carried our sorrows. Like a man or a woman sucking the poison out of a snake bite in order to save a life, Jesus takes our sorrows upon himself. And the key difference between our sorrows and his sorrows is that we are responsible partially for ours, aren't we? In fact, we are primarily responsible because he was pierced for our transgressions. This is Isaiah writing this. He's that the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. And it's the first time in the book of Isaiah there's this theme of a suffering servant that gets carried throughout. In Isaiah 53, it's the first time we're told, why did he have to suffer? And here we get the answer. Us. Our sin. Our transgression. You know, the reason we celebrate Jesus as the light of the world, it's a great phrase. A biblical phrase. But the reason we celebrate it is not because he came to set other people right. It's because he came to set us right. You know the problem in the world? It's not outside these walls. It's right here. You know what my biggest problem is in life? Me. Kevin DeYoung, pastor, author that I follow closely, he just tweeted out this past week as I'm preparing this. He says, we all must realize theologically and fundamentally, that our biggest problem is us. And you know what's interesting about that? I have never met anyone who has said to me, you know what, I have no problems. Like, I'm actually, I'm fine. I don't struggle with whatever you call it. I don't have sin. Uh, there's nothing broken in my life, nothing messed up, man. I'm just killing it all the time. No one's ever said that. But you know where the difference lies? We all know we're kind of there. We all know something's a little off, a little wrong, something needs some fixing. Where the difference lies is what are we going to do about it? And when you break it down, there's only really two answers you can come up with. Salvation by works or salvation by grace. Because I have heard plenty of people just say, you know what, I, I, res 
like, I'm fine that you believe that. I just can't get there. Like, I don't know about this Jesus. Like, let's be honest, we're celebrating a boy born in a manger. Uh, you, you want me to believe in a man who died uh, 2,000 years ago? That that's going to change my life? Like, no offense, but I don't adhere to that doctrine. That's a little fairy tale esque to me. You, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do this. I'm going to live my life the best I can. And, and I think that's a very um, uh, natural thing. I think it's something we're seeing more and more of. I think, especially amongst younger generations, they're like, man, I want these, these rules and these churches, and I need to do this and I do that, and I'm boxed in. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to live my life. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I have no hostility against it. I'm just going to live my life. And Tim Keller. Um, really in talking about this says, listen, that's not new. That's not a millennial thing. That's not a Generation Z thing. That is the oldest doctrine that there's ever been. And you know what it's called? Salvation by works. I'll figure it out. And the only things that could lead to is either this constant anxiety of, am I being good enough? Who's the judge here? Am I the judge? Do I get to decide? Does somebody else get to decide? Am I good enough? Or the sense of pride, like, I've figured it out. I'm good enough. Why can't you figure it out? You people have so many problems. You've got to be more like me. And it's just kind of sense of pride or crushing defeat. Because we know we're not good enough. We know we can't fix it. And we're crushed by it. But Isaiah 53 reveals that God is, and God always was, a God of grace. Salvation by grace. And he did it through a substitute. Someone who paid it all, who bore our sorrows because we couldn't. The gospel writers picked up on this 800 years later, have been all over it, making this connection from Isaiah 53 to Jesus. And I think John nailed it most clearly. John gets a bad rap because there's no Christmas in John. Like we love Matthew, we love Luke, but John just kind of jumps right in. But I beg to differ. In John 1, he writes that the true light came into the world, and for all believe in his name, their sin is paid for. John knew there is no Christmas without Easter. And the beauty of light coming into the world is when we become, go from becoming enemies of God to children of God, from war to peace, from death to life. And how does that happen? By his blood. Without the cross, Jesus is just a motivational teacher who uh, broke against the, the norm, who stuck it to the man and, and tore down some, some systems of injustice, which was very good. But that alone, without the cross, he's just a moral compass. With the cross, he goes to becoming the savior of the world. Let's keep going. We've got to pick up the pace. Verses 6 through 9. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that's, uh, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Fourth attribute, the Messiah is silent. Word picture that is used all throughout the scripture is uh, as people as sheep. It's a blunt yet very real truth that men and women are prone to wander. You know what sheep do? They wander. 
and they wander unknowingly from the very source of life, from the shepherd, the one who protects them and feeds them and shields them and guides them. And you know, when a sheep wanders, it never ends well for the sheep. Like they get outside that protection of the shepherd and they're exposed to this world that will devour them. And that is the picture of sin. That's the madness against rebelling against the very God who made us. And Isaiah makes it clear, we have turned personal pronouns, everyone to his own way. And so the Lord sent his son, joy to the world, who took on the role of a sheep to go to slaughter. And he didn't fight it. Twice in that passage, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus, the lion of Judah, became the lamb who was slain out of his great love for us. And you get to the end of the gospel accounts. We talked about the beginning, the Christmas story. You get to the end of the gospel accounts, and you see this sham of a kangaroo court that put him on the cross. It's ridiculous. The things that they were trying to stick to them, they couldn't get out of their own way. They had nothing they could put against Jesus. They just wanted him killed because they threatened their power. And you get through all these baseless accusations and there's this line that comes up at the end of the gospel accounts that's over and over again and Jesus did not open his mouth. And as you're reading it, you're like, Jesus, don't let this happen. Like, these guys are insane. And you're being silent. And yet, again, no, Jesus did not open his mouth. And the reason, as Isaiah 53 foresaw, was not because he couldn't. He chose not to. Because this is why he came, to die in such a way that will bring life. All right, verses 10 and 11, let's keep going. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Fifth, praise God, the Messiah succeeds. Here's the turn in Isaiah 53, that first word of uh, verse 10, yet. And verse 10 is simultaneously one of the hardest and one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. It's both. It's tough to explain. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. If you're reading that for the first time, you probably would like rub your eyes, like I couldn't have just read that. That, that, didn't, that could not have just said that. And you read it again and you go, oh my gosh. One of the deepest, the most mysterious aspects of Isaiah 53 and of the entire Bible is that it was the Father's pleasure to send his son to the cross. You know, there's always been claims of this, but it's really picked up heat in the last couple hundred years that the gospel story is just like this cosmic child abuse. God giving up his son for no reason against his will, that should be rejected. That should be shunned. We should not be teaching our children that downstairs. That's a hate story. But when you keep reading the Bible in its entirety, you see a different story. That God is one in three persons. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit never have any division in them. That Jesus was in full unison with this redemptive plan. 
me show you very quick. If you had to distill, what's Isaiah 53 about? You could probably sum it up in two verses found in Hebrews 1 and 2. Listen, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy Jesus had, the same joy the Father had in sending him there, was not in the cross itself, but it was in the glory that it would win and the souls it would save. This is immeasurable pain followed by infinite joy. And the righteous one, God's servant, Jesus Christ, who would make many accounted righteous by paying for their sin. Jesus succeeds. And let's look at the sixth, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sixth attribute. The Messiah intercedes. He succeeds and then he intercedes. This is the glorious conclusion to the brutal suffering this servant endured. So we saw the thesis up front. We saw the body and now we read the conclusion that yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When Jesus was raised from the dead, proving he was the Son of God, ascended into the heaven to the right hand of the throne where he is right now, the name above all names. He is right now the king above all kings. And hear me, he is no longer silent. He is currently right now interceding on behalf of those who put their faith in him. So do you know what that means? You are who Christ says you are. A child of God. Fully forgiven. And whenever the accusations come that you are not forgiven that you are less than, that you are far from God, Jesus intercedes and goes, no, I paid for that. Especially those accusations that come from within because we know nobody shames us more than we do. That you aren't good enough. That you feel dirty, that these people don't really know the real me. And Jesus says, no, I know and I say what you are. You are forgiven, you are loved, you are chosen. And our Savior is no longer silent. And he is the lion once again. And nothing can separate you from the love of Christ once you put your life in him. And while it might not seem obvious at first, Isaiah 53, you know what it is? It's an Advent sermon. And what we need to explicitly affirm as we close is that the foundational joy that we spoke of at the beginning, that we speak of in the Christian life, you know what it is? It's in the giver, not the gifts. So as we stand on the brink of Christmas morning, I want to say this because I fear church in the suburbs, in Ridgewood, this is a truth we're prone to forget. It's a truth we are prone to forget because for those of us who are believers, we are prone to forget how the Bible continually lays before us the fact that when we go through various trials, when we go through dry seasons, that God is still at work in those moments. And when we lose sight of that, it's so easy to lose sight of that. When that derails, here's what we're prone to say, that I won't experience joy in this life without blank. What's in your blank? Great marriage. Strong physical health. You want the promotion at work? You want more money in the bank? 
You want to be the best athlete in your conference? Whatever is in that blank, that is the thing that's going to compete with Jesus Christ for your ultimate joy. And so hear me, it's not a bad thing to enjoy things God gives you. Like we ask for them, we yearn for them, we want strong marriages. We want you to get after it at work and work for the glory of the Lord and climb the ladder and make the money. We want you to be the best athlete in the, in the uh, conference. We want you to experience healing when you get sick. And likewise, it's not wrong to mourn or grieve over losses or suffering in this world and grieve deeply. It's not wrong to be enraged over systemic injustices that prevail in our culture. We saw Jesus was a man of sorrows. But the problem is when these things in our blank have more control over our joy than the person and work of Jesus Christ. The mature and growing believer will dig deep into the truth of the fact that I got God. And if I got God, if I got a Savior who gave his life to work salvation in my soul, then all those other things can be sustained and worked in and pursued, but our ultimate primary joy is not contingent upon them. And being a pastor, I get a front row seat to a lot of people's heartaches and a lot of people's joys and victories in life. And I would just say this, the difference between those who are exhausted, those who are anxious and strung out, and the one who is sustained like a well-watered tree, even in the heartache, is whether your ultimate joy is rooted in the giver, God himself, versus in the gifts you may or may not receive in life. And the reality is we often don't know where our joy will be rooted until hard times fall on us, until something gets threatened to be taken from us. And my prayer is that God will consistently and constantly be rearranging the affections in our hearts and lifting our eyes to him to see at the core of it all there was a man who was sent into the earth and for the joy set before him endured the cross. A man who is seated right now interceding on your behalf who says who you are is in his name. His joy, now your joy. So I end with the question that Isaiah started with. Who's believed it? Who has believed that which he has heard? Our ultimate joy is at stake. Let's pray.